Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium at Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I have often been too intent on the cat to see the celestial consequences of my worldly endeavors. Across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor. I work at the Louis Real Library, and I also am just getting by on books, baseball, and fried egg sandwiches. <laughs> across the table from me is... I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and aren't you glad my name is not also John Ames? <laughs> <laughs> A good book can carry me away from an ever-engined ordinary day, yeah. So keep it down, leave me alone, close the doors and turn off the phone, cause all I ever really need is a little more time to read. And you, dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you. We'd love to hear from you. Why not get in touch and tell us what you think about the books we're reading? You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. But please try to keep your correspondence briefer than this month's novel. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Before we dig in, let's do a quick check-in with the panel. So, how are you guys doing? <laughs> Good. Fantastic. <laughs> That wasn't meant to be a stumper. <laughs> I never know what to say there. Yeah. yeah. Like, do we be honest or do we be, do we be pleasant? Hmm. Well, we're a podcast, so I think we have the luxury of doing either. But, you know, we're public well, the service Well, joke's types. on you. I am honestly doing well. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know how we always say, get in touch with us? And most of the time we say it and nobody does, but we actually got a fan email. So late last month, just after I finished editing, we got an email from a lovely person named Lois from Boise, Idaho, who declared herself our biggest fan. Not only does she enjoy our podcast, but she declared that it's better than the BBC and New York Times book podcasts. We love you, Lois. Yeah, that was great. That was such a boost. Yeah. We really don't get a lot of emails, and it was really sweet to get one, and we really appreciate it. So thank you, Lois, for listening and letting us know you're listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode, too. And this month's novel takes place in Iowa, which also starts with an I. It's not, it's not, it's not Idaho, <laughs> but, you know... It's kind of in the same general area. Sure, you could drive there. Yeah, yeah. When this episode becomes available, we'll be into November, and literary types may know that November is sometimes referred to as NaNoWriMo, which is a shortened version of National Novel Writing Month, where people take on the challenge to write a 50,000-word novel in the 30 days of November, as well as growing a mustache. No, that's something else. You can do them both, but you don't have to. <laughs> no, that's right. You don't get like an extra point for uh, end of the month achieving a mustache and a novel. So anyway, yeah, have you guys, you, you guys have obviously heard of this as a thing, and what, have you, what do you think about it? Have you ever tried to participate? I've never done a NoRimo, but I've done other similar challenges related to music. Like in February, there's a challenge called February's Album Writing Month, or FOM, which was inspired by NaNoWriMo. 
the same idea. You try to write 14 songs in the 28 days of February. Mm. So they're fun challenges, especially when there's a community around it. And Nanoraimo has like uh, forums and stuff and people talk about their experiences and share it. So that's a cool idea. Yeah, I have not done anything like that. It sounds like it would be quite hard, quite the challenge. Kind of appeals to me because I feel like if, if you feel like you've always wanted to try to write a novel, but you just don't know where to start or have the time that it could be, if you're intentional about it, four weeks is not a super long time. If you just sort of set aside the time, you'd have to come up with a strategy, I think, and you'd have to be prepared. And of course, we're recording this at the end of October. And I don't have any ideas for a novel, so I'm not going to do it this year. But uh, do you remember a few, a couple of years back, we did a, a, one of the monthly podcast books we did was by Linda Holmes. Evie Drake. Evie Drake. Mm-hmm. And that started as a NaNoWriMo project for her. She wrote the bulk of that book during November and, uh, and lo and behold, it is now published yeah. and out there. And she's written a second book since then. So it was a pretty good book, too. Yeah. So, you know, I think you have to have maybe some ideas to start. I would say you can't just start with a blank canvas on November 1st. You probably need to probably do some thinking. I don't know. Anyway, I thought I'd just mention it. Yeah. Cool. We're going to move on with the podcast. And Toby is going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. Okay, Marilyn Robinson. Um, She was born Marilyn Summers, November 26, 1943, in Sandpoint, Idaho, and grew up in Coeur d'Alene. Her father was in the timber industry, and her mother stayed at home. Uh, She has one brother, who at an early age decided he was going to be a painter and she a poet. She was a pious child, raised as a Presbyterian. Uh, She later became a Congregationalist, which would come to be important in many of her novels. When she was 12, her family was involved in a car accident. Everyone was injured. Her brother broke his leg. She had a concussion. The crash was so traumatic that Robinson does not drive to this day. Mm -hmm. Um, She did her undergraduate degree at Pembroke College, obtaining a BA in American Literature in 1966. She thought about going into the ministry, but when she did not get a scholarship for seminary, she decided to go to graduate school, obtaining her PhD in English from the University of Washington in 1977. Her dissertation was on Shakespeare's Henry VI, Part II. While at the U of Washington, she married another student, Fred Robinson, and their first son was born not long afterwards. When her husband got a job in Massachusetts, they moved there and she had her second son. As a family, they also spent time living in France and England, though they did divorce in 1989. Her first novel, Housekeeping, was published in 1980 and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. For the next many years, she focused on writing nonfiction, including 1989's Mother Country, Britain, the Welfare State, and Nuclear Pollution, which is a scathing examination of the environmental and public health dangers posed by the Sellafield Nuclear Reprocessing Plant in England. She still calls this her most important book. She started teaching at the Iowa Writers' Workshop in 1989. She's been a member of her church in Iowa as long as she's lived there and has occasionally preached. When she started writing a new novel, it was because she had begun to hear the voice of a minister. She returned to fiction with Gilead in 2004, which did win the Pulitzer. She continued to write both fiction and nonfiction, including three additional novels in the Gilead universe, Home, Lila, and Jack. And I just saw that Todd Field, the filmmaker who directed Tar, is adapting Gilead for film. 
Um, among her other accolades include the Orange Prize, a National Humanities Medal awarded by President Barack Obama, and the Library of Congress Prize for American Fiction. She was also on Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in 2016. Her most recent work is the essay collection, What Are We Doing Here? from 2018, and she continues to live in Iowa City and spend summers with family in upstate New York. This is my summary for the novel Gilead. One fine spring morning in 1956, Pastor John Ames begins a letter to his young son. They hopes the son will read once he is a grown man, so he may have an idea of what his father was like. He's doing this because Ames is in his late 70s, and he has just received some medical news that he has a failing heart. And his son is just seven years old at the time of writing this letter. So it's reasonable to think that this may be the only tangible thing that his son will have when he's grown up to get an idea about what his father was all about. So what started as a letter soon transforms into a journal of sorts where Ames records his memories of growing up among a long line of ministers and the complicated relationships he observed between his grandfather, who was a staunch abolitionist and not shy to stir men to war, and his own father, a pacifist who was driven from the Methodists to the Quakers. Ames's letter recounts his lifelong friendship with his friend, Presbyterian minister Robert Boughton, and the fact that Boughton's son, Jack, is planning to visit. I should also say that this entire novel is written as a letter, and I believe that's called a, I'm going to get this, an epistolatory. Epistolatory. Epistolary? Epistolary. That sounds the least awkward of the three ways that we've said it. I think pistolary means you have a gun in it. <laughs> so it works both ways. <laughs> so it's a, the whole thing is a novel. And when I was telling somebody that we were reading a book about a novel, uh, the, the whole thing, the whole novel is a letter. Uh, my friend said, do you write all in one day? Like, no, no, there's, there's paragraphs and the, there's breaks. It's over, a, I would say, a period of weeks. So anyway, the, the whole action of the book really comes down to Bowden's son, Jack, comes home to visit his ailing father, and there's a complicated history between Jack and the narrator John Ames. Jack is named after John Ames because when John Ames was a younger man, he was married, but his wife passed away during the birth of their child, and for decades he lived as a single man as a minister, and during that time it seemed like maybe he would not have a family of his own, so his neighbor and friend Boughton named the son after John Ames, and in a way, John Ames always felt a certain obligation to be a father figure to Jack. But then his visit has, has brought up a lot of memories about Jack growing up and, and how he was and things that have happened in his life that triggers John Ames to write about these things in this letter to his son, including events that involve Jack, John Ames, and Boughton. I think I'll just stop the summary there before we go too much. You know, there's kind of a twist sort of at the end-ish. I don't know if we want to call it a twist. but A reveal? A reveal, yeah, of things. But nothing that's like, we're not talking about an unreliable narrator, I don't think, necessarily. I mean, to the extent that we're all unreliable, but yeah, my summary just kind of petered out there, like a, <laughs> like somebody with a pen that's just, just kind of kind scribbled. Kind of trailed and, off at the end there. The end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now I can face my eternal rest. Yeah. That's how it ends, or something like that. So how'd you find it? Uh, I, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um... I don't think I'm the audience for this book. Oh, I found it so boring, you guys. It was so boring. I it was very like very heady, very philosophical. I've never been to church, but I imagine reading this novel is a similar experience to sitting in church. Like 
I just, it was so boring. I complained or I criticized the last novel we wrote for its lack of plot. This one had even less plot. And then I just feel like there was this weird Christian gatekeeping here where so often the narrator would make a comment like, so-and-so says that pies are best when they're baked from home, but he's a Methodist, you know? And then like, there was even a reference to a, a bean salad being Presbyterian. Like what, I don't, what does that mean? What that, am I missing was, here? What did this, there's some sort of like Christian. No, that was, that was humor. What was it? He was he was making a joke there. But he kept doing it. So and so does yeah, that, this, and he's a Presbyterian, was, and so and so does this, and they're they're Baptists. So like, what the like? My my favorite one of those was when he was trying to convince that one father not to worry so much about his son using uh, maybe an off color phrase or something. He said he finally deferred to my white hair and my vocation, though he did ask me twice if I was a Unitarian. Like I don't get it. <laughs> if that's supposed to be funny, it's not funny to me. I just. Don't get it. And yeah, that's actually something that came up a lot in this novel is that he's constantly referring to things, a lot of it in the Bible, but also a lot of it philosophical or theological and various writers. And there's no, well, there's some explanation sometimes, but it just, he writes it as if you know what that is. Yeah, and I do not. Yeah. Yeah. And I was raised in the church. I went to a private school that was religious. My brother is a, was a pastor, and there's still tons of it I didn't get at all. Yeah, well, um, that goes back to, like, I'm not the audience for this book, you know? No, yeah. potentially not. How about you, Trevor? Well, you know, I read it, and I finished it maybe a week ago or so, so I, I feel like I've had some time to reflect on it and uh, come back. I feel like the further away I get from reading it, the more I'm, I'm coming back to think about it. So, personally, I, I found it kind of refreshing in a way or quietly kind of moving in that the idea that this man has no kind of what's the word i'm looking for like he he doesn't have any kind of uh, illusions about his imminent death and so he's taking a moment to reflect on maybe the things that he wants to impart all at once to this son that he he absolutely loves things that you know are harder to say in person that you can maybe put down in writing. And I do definitely see what you're, you're saying, Toby, about it being kind of coded with uh, a w- weird kind of denominational peculiarities. But I, I think in a, maybe in a small town in the States in the, in the 1950s, there were several different brands of Protestant Christianity. And although they are all pretty much the same flavor, they're slightly different colorations and hues and and that it does become kind of a bit of a a teasing point between ministers like a methodist will rib a presbyterian a presbyterian will kind of you know make fun of um you know the anglican or or whatever which kind of always gets me kind of like disinterested in the theology side of christianity because i feel like as soon as people start sitting down to try to talk about what it is it's immediately over my head and it kind of loses, like, the point. Like, I feel like that's the point when God leaves the room is when men sit down and try to explain it. And uh, a lot of this is kind of, uh, you know, he's a, he's a minister. I think he's a good man, John Ames. I think he's he's lived his life. He's not, you know, but he's he's uh, still, at the end of his life, trying to to figure out things. Like, it's not it's not clear to him. 
I don't think he calls his own faith into question, but just sort of he's questioning maybe his own actions in his life about how he dealt with uh, Jack and and how he never really maybe did live up to be the father figure that he had hoped to be for him. I don't know. I think my experience of the book was best summed up by one of his lines. He wrote, as I write, I am aware that my memory has made much of very little. I'm with Toby. I found it tedious mm-hmm. uh, and underwhelming because they really pitch this book hard. This is the soul of America. It's won a mm. Pulitzer Prize. It won a ton of prizes. And I look at the reviews and there are some people who are just gushing about it. And I'm like, okay, there's a lovely command of language. And unlike some authors who really, you know, employ the flowery language and use a big vocabulary, it's not overdone most of the time. But there's this thing where people try to be really profound. And sometimes that works. And I, But it, sometimes for me, it really, really falls flat when someone is trying really hard to be profound. And this book felt like that to me. Like the whole thing was the pastor is trying to explain the ineffable. He's trying to put a description to things that can't be put into words, like trying to figure out a Zen cone by explaining it in a lot of words, right? The idea of Christianity that this pastor has is the one where it's a mystery, where you like meditate on the thing and it kind of comes to you as a feeling. He talks a lot about how he feels and uh, like all the ways that the world speaks to him and uh, evokes this sense of wonder and stuff like that. But you can only do that so much you know it's like oh just just listen to the wind and just oh i just i sit in the room and i just absorb the quiet and but after a while it just becomes really tedious and it's like yeah we know we know it's pretty cool when you sit in a quiet room and no one else is there and and it is like i'm not making fun of that experience the experiences are important and meaningful to every individual but it's also something that you can't make a book about very easily do you think the fact that she wrote the book as a letter created her own barriers in terms of the structure in, in that the reason, maybe one of the reasons why it feels tedious is because it is written with the same voice throughout and supposedly over a number of weeks or months so that a person writing this letter may revisit things again? Because I, I kind of got the impression that John Ames might be also going a little bit senile. And that some of the stuff that he's talking about, he's already talked about, but that's a few pages ago and it's been a few weeks later. And so I wonder if it would feel a bit different because I understand, I haven't read them, that with the the follow-up books, they are written in a more of a traditional third-person narrative. They aren't also epistolary. Mm-hmm. How do you say that? Epistol? Epistolary? Epistolary. They are epistolary. putting an extra syllable in there. I think I am. Yeah. Epistolary. It's just because the book was so long it needs more syllables. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just wondering if the structure like the, is something that might have worked against it. I don't know. I think yeah. at the end of the day, it's about this old dude, this, you know, very nice, kind old dude who, I mean, he, there's not much, hap- there just, there's just not much, there's not much that happens in the book and whether it's from his perspective or someone else's perspective, I, I don't know how much that would matter. I think the thing with the letter that got me, though, is you're writing a letter to your son. It's specifically, that's the goal, right? He wants to write things to his son. And he does that for a while. And then he just starts talking about what's happening right now. And then it stops. Wouldn't you write that in a separate journal, your day-to-day stuff, and then also have your thing that you would give your son? Like, 
if you were trying to send a message to him. It just felt weird to me that his letter would suddenly start uh, yeah, drifting like off to Jack all this stuff. other stuff. Like, he was focusing a lot on Jack and everything. I mean, you know, he did a little bit of the day-to-day remembrances, I guess, like, oh, today you went and played with the cat and, you know, today. Yeah. But it felt odd to me that if it was supposed to be a letter and it, it started drifting off into this, uh, in his personal quandary about how to deal with Jack. The whole conflict with Jack to... There's so many levels to it which bug me. Like, it goes quite a while, him being nervous about Jack, before he even starts talking about why. Mm-hmm. Because and he was a bad kid. Not just a bad kid. He was a little psychopath. He was breaking into people's houses and moving stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a little I know of a situation where someone did exactly that type of thing. He would break into houses and move stuff pictures and stuff just a little bit or or take small items that weren't valuable that guy went to jail for murder uh, as after he escalated so i'm reading that and for me it's just sending off warning bells like it, you it know. seems like jack came around though like jack grew yeah, up but and... he also maybe burned down a barn and killed a bunch of farm animals he, maybe 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 no proof yeah. but again and uh and the thing is the narrator is not inclined to do a lot of speculation. Like if he says he thought so, then there's a decent chance that's what likely what happened. And then he impregnated a girl and left her, like didn't do anything to take care of the kid after that. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. But then, then he changes. He grows up. He finds a wife. He has another kid. Yeah. But he's still an alcoholic at the time who can't hold down a job, right? Yeah. He was still a mess. And then at the end of the book, he just kind of, well, I guess that's not going to work. And he goes off. While his father is dying. While his father's dying. And it's like, so a deeply unsatisfactory arc for him from the perspective of this book. I know there's another book that focuses on him, so maybe that cleans that up. But in terms of what we see of Jack in this book, it's like... But Jack isn't really the focus of this book, right? I think it's John Ames and yeah. his kind of reckoning of his life. And, and the fact towards the end of the book where John Ames feels like he's gotten to the point where he can give a blessing to Jack, that's in a way I found that was sort of a satisfactory closure to that arc in that he came to his own terms with how he wasn't the greatest influence on Jack growing up and that he couldn't talk about things. Yeah, can we talk about how like no one seems to talk to anybody about important things in this town? Like, well, Jack uh, and Lila are talking about something. Yeah, and that was a very interesting part of the book. I thought like I, there was quite a bit of tension there until like I was thinking like, oh my god, like is is Jack like making you know, a move, getting it on <laughs> to Lila? Like you know, and he kind of got that sense in just the way that uh, John Ames was writing. He like you know the part where he was pretending to be asleep on the porch or whatever, and then so he could hear what. Jack and his wife were actually talking about and there wasn't really anything too damning but still and then you find out he is married and he you know he has a child and so that isn't but there was a, a stretch there where I was like and he even talks about oh maybe is Jack going to replace me because they're both about the same you know Jack and, and his wife are about the same age and stuff and then he sees you know Jack playing catch with his son and all these kind of weird things happening but yeah and and, and John Ames's wife like we don't really know anything about her because John Ames seems to be happy to not really find out anything about her before she kind of shows up in the middle of a rainstorm to his church and things go from there. And 
I don't know. I guess maybe being a minister, you have to kind of compartmentalize because you're you're dealing with so many different things. You know, one one minute you're going to be at the bedside of somebody who's sick and passing away, and then the next minute you're planning, you know, um, a wedding or whatever. And so you you can't really ride the highs and lows maybe of, of those emotional things. So you kind of keep them all inside. Because he did mention how often he he kind of saw himself as a spectator his own life, like when he was listening to those baseball games and he, he, if he was having conversations with people, he was often kind of saw himself above, like next to what was going on and that he would only sort of ask things or he would sort of like almost rate the conversation like a fight or something to see, oh, they, this person scored points here, this person lost points. And that's kind of how he's kind of lives his life, right? He's not really going to put himself out there. The point about people not really talking to each other was really evident, like there were a lot of situations where there was some sort of interaction and then he follows it up with, and I took that to mean, and he, go, he then explains like quite a bit that was not said at all, but that's what he took from the conversation. And like every conversation is like that. He never says what he means to other people and they don't say what they mean to him. It's all supposed to be understood at some level underneath that, which I always find frustrating I mean, it, it happens in conversation. You have conversations with people and there's stuff that's not said, but you kind of feel like it. But that's also the cause of a lot of misunderstanding between people. Like, I know lots of people who have uh, assumed someone meant something in their conversation when I know for a fact, having talked to them about it, that that wasn't the intention. So it, it's dangerous to make a lot of assumptions like that in conversation. But it seemed like most conversations that they were involved in in this book had some level of that. There's almost like a, a passivity where things are just happening to people and not they're not being active participants in their lives. Like I just, I kept getting frustrated with John Ames too, because he's so upset that he's too old to, you know, he won't see his son grow up and have a relationship. And that's why he's writing this, this letter, but like, go, go and play with your son, go spend time with him. Don't just sit here and write your innermost thoughts to him. Oh, he's yeah. tired. He's an old man. <laughs> well, just go sit on the porch and watch him play catch. Like, don't just, you know, write about the light in his hair looking beautiful. Well, that, that's because he is watching him, though. He is watching him do those things. And he does have a bad heart, so he not, can't really throw a ball around much. But he can spend time with his son in meaningful ways, and he doesn't seem to be doing that. He seems yeah, to just think, be spending but, all of his time writing this letter. But we're only seeing the time that he's writing the letter. Like, like he's not writing the letter morning, noon, and night, I don't think. Like, I, he's, I'm sure he's like, you know. Well, he's like walking to his church in the <laughs> middle of the night and yeah. sitting there in the darkness. So what did you think of, like, the first part of the book, it dealt a lot more with his father and grandfather. Great uh, grave-searching adventure. Yeah. yeah, there was that, and then there John was James one, John Ames two, John Ames three. <laughs> yeah, and in the stories of his grandfather doing uh, like military missions, almost it seemed like. Yeah, like he's such a staunch abolitionist that he you know wanted to end slavery by any means necessary, even like if it meant you know supporting the war. Yeah, and not only supporting the war, but going off to the war with a pistol, and getting his eye shot out, or whatever happened to him coming back with a bloody shirt and preaching and, and all that kind of stuff. I, one, one thing I kind of observed, which was kind of different from some of the books we've read recently, is that Christianity plays a huge role, I think, in this novel. And also, you know, we, we heard from Toby you know, from uh, the author's life. But Christianity itself 
isn't really put on trial in this book. You know, we've, we've read all kinds of stories of things with our own national history of residential schools and, and abuse and things where the church has played a, a huge role in destroying people's lives. But in this book, I didn't get the sense that the church was the enemy. It was it's sort of like there were different aspects of Christianity that would pit humans against each other. Like there was the grandfather who was the abolitionist. But the son, who had been John Ames's father, was a pacifist, so they disagreed on that matter. But they never disagreed on on the fact that they were both ministers and uh, pastors or whatever. I just thought that was kind of something I haven't seen before. There was actually just coined a new phrase. I was going to say a lot of passive-aggressive, but I guess it could be pastor-aggressive. Like when they'd have those interactions, like, have I said something to offend you, Reverend? Right. No, not at all, Reverend. Yeah. <laughs> you two, stop fighting. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that goes back to saying, like, not saying what you're saying, like like talking yeah. around it, like you were mentioning before. Yeah. There is Edward, the brother, who yes. goes away to study in Germany and comes back as a non-believer. Right. And, and I mean, there's not much said about that character, but he's he's not around and he's not thought of in a fond, fond way. No. Well, except the parents did go off and live with him. So, like, because he said, like, his, his father and his mother left to go live oh, with Edward. Right, right, yeah. So they thought okay of him, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to me, that spoke more to just, like, intergenerational tension, right? Like, you're, you know, the next generation is always going to try to rebel against the parental or figure's authority. And so John Ames's father was rebelling against the bloodthirstiness of his of his father. But then his son, Edward, is rebelling against the religiosity of his father. I don't know. It just sort of seemed like uh, that's sort of the way of things. It didn't seem strange to me. I think the thing that I feel about this novel the most is that the story itself wasn't that cohesive. There were interesting parts to it, but it wasn't that interesting. But I don't think... I felt like the author was trying to paint a picture by painting around all the details. Like it's one of those things where you have this detail and that detail and this expression and this reflection and so forth. And the idea was to present a picture that came out of the gaps within everything that was said. And sometimes that works well, but it just didn't it just didn't connect with me. That's why I think that maybe the I I thought some of the limitations to the book came from the, just its structure as a written as a letter that you could only get things from one perspective and and there would be huge gaps if you're going to write it like a letter because you, I think Toby you said before like nothing happened in this book and you're right like it's like if you were to actually talk about the plot it's like a man returns home he has a few conversations with his father's friend and then he goes away or whatever like I mean it's like that's kind of all that happens in the action of the book. Yeah, which is not really enough. You know what part of this book I I liked the most, I think, was that whole anecdote about those townspeople who built the tunnel under the road and then, <laughs> and then they the filled it in and then the horse came along and fell in the hole. Yeah, that was my favorite part. And then they had to move the hole down <laughs> half a mile down the road. Yeah. 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 And they had to just swap the guy's horse for another horse. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. The logistics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of interesting anecdotes. Yeah. And if you take it as a look at like living through some of those difficult parts of American history, the Civil War and then uh, World War One and crash of the late twenties and how people got through, like the you know him and his dad going after this, uh, trying to find the grave of their grandfather. 
staying with a widow in a farmhouse for a couple of days and doing chores and like nearly dying just so you could travel this distance across dusty landscapes is like a lot of little interesting snippets. Nothing coherent in a narrative that way, but just, again, little images, spots on the canvas to give you an outline of a life. Some of those snippets were very interesting. I also think that, you know, I'm not well-versed enough in Christianity to understand a lot of what he was talking about when he referred to Christianity. It was the same thing with the history. Like, there's there's things about the Civil War and things about, like, free soilers mm. and the grandfather being friends with John Brown and the Underground Railroad. And I think there's so much there that I just don't have a, enough of a background in to really appreciate or get. I had to look up a few things. Yeah, like I too. looked up John Brown just yeah, to see, and I looked up Free Soiler. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, me too. Like when he ta started talking about some of the, 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 like the theological points of view and like Carl Bart was one of the guys that he talked about. And so I had, I picked up one of Carl Bart's books and I was going to talk about it later just because I'm trying to get a handle on some of this stuff because I feel like, yeah, it's mentioned and it, maybe the, the author assumes a lot of maybe prior knowledge to get a lot of, or, or is assuming that if someone's interested, they will go and try to fill in the gaps uh, themselves. But yeah, he had mentioned the Underground Railroad, which to me is always like such a huge part of American history, but it's never really directly addressed in the novel, is it? Like, I, I believe no. those tunnels were probably <laughs> Underground Railroad. Uh, oh, yeah. explicitly, yeah. yeah. But did they say it though? I don't even know if they mentioned the Grand Railroad. And there's well, talk of like the black church being burnt down and and things like that. Like it, like so, it's definitely they've been affected. And of course, the you know the end of slavery and the abolitionists. But I, it kind of comes at it sideways, or do you like to say little dots on a canvas. The narrator is assuming that you know all this stuff because he's assuming his son will know all of this stuff, I guess, and doesn't explain it at all. But all those references to the Free Soilers and this town only being here because it was within striking distance of Kansas and all that is all referring to the Underground Railroad and, and abolition efforts, uh, conflicts leading up to the Civil War. It never explicitly says it all. It's yeah. just left out there. And so the experience is kind of like talking to, I don't know, it reminds me of when I was in university and trying to talk to my philosophy professor about a problem I was having with uh, something in his class. And it just, I couldn't understand him because he kept referring to things. You know, it was like he kept referring to an author and saying, oh yeah, well, that's like foyer talk on the, you know, on the subject. And it's like, you can't just give me references all the time. The references only work if we have a common frame of reference. If you keep doing that, you start losing people who don't have that frame of reference. I'm assuming that people who absolutely love this book are Christian and highly educated and uh, really into theology, because otherwise I think there's just too much that doesn't come out readily. And like I say, I've, I've studied some theology. I was steeped in religion as a younger man, and there is still a lot in here that just references that I don't have and don't mean what anything to What is the Presbyterian me. bean salad? <laughs> Does anyone know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm assuming a lot of this is also just local culture. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like I grew up Mennonite, and uh, there's like Mennonite Brethren and General Conference Mennonite and things like that. And they're all very, very similar, except that like the Mennonite Brethren, you couldn't smoke, I think, cigarettes. And there was slightly differing rules about dancing and uh, little things. But if you were at a gathering of people in the same group, you know, you could make a little joke about the way the MBs wouldn't do this or they would do that or something like that. And it would be just this little in-joke. 
And so that was like in here, like I'm assuming that's just uh, Presbyterian families in the area tended to make a certain thing at their potlucks. And, uh, and he got one and he thought, this isn't one of ours. <laughs> <laughs> and if any of our listeners has a recipe for a Presbyterian <laughs> bean salad, I'm happy to put it in our show notes. Going back to what we were talking about with like the Underground Railroad and Civil War, there's definitely like a very quiet undercurrent of race throughout this whole thing. In addition to the Christianity, um, you know, the all the things I just mentioned. But then, you know, when Jack comes back and we find out he's married to a black woman and they have a child and he's kind of feeling out like, will I be accepted here? Um, and I thought that was rather interesting. Yeah, and I liked how, like, with, with John Ames, at least, like, the, the common thread throughout the book was just his decency, like, the way that he wrote about his wife and how he just, he loved her and and all the little things about her and, and he loved his son and even his lifelong friendship with, with Boughton and, and their, all their shared memories and just, like, the, the decency. And I thought it was kind of funny, too, like, Jack comes to town and he's kind of a little put out that like no one's talking about him, you know. Like he's like, oh, your 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 you know your husband didn't warn warn you about me, and she's like, no. And it's like well, he's kind of expecting that everyone's just waiting to judge him, and yet for he could, there didn't seem to be a whole lot of like judgment. Like even when North maybe there should have been, but like when John Ames yeah finds out the reveal that Jack is married to a black woman has a son, and he says, wow, that's a great looking family, you know. And I just thought that was just kind of like. Just another but sign of like. I don't think he's ready to accept them, though. Well, he's 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 definitely like struggling, but I think he's somebody that I think is likable. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's really hard to say because it wasn't like it was there. Yeah. But it wasn't brought up explicitly a lot, right? Well, Jack like it, asks John. This is the situation. Do you think I can? Do you think my father and my family here will accept? us mm-hmm. and he he doesn't really give him an answer yeah. well he kind of he says he's he doesn't want to say because he can't and then jack asks him again well what would if i were asking you if you were my father and then he kind of in a slightly less roundabout way says yes he'd be happy for him but again he couches it all kind of carefully but he's not sure that Bowden would be ready for that doesn't want to speak for him but he does like, you know, Jack's like, well, you know, that black church burned down and they left, right? And he's like, yeah, well, that was more of a nuisance fire. I wasn't actually someone trying to burn them out or anything. And they were very vague about that. And it was unclear why every black person left. They didn't really talk about that. And is that just, he didn't want to talk about what actually happened or did nothing happen and they just decided they wanted a different place to set up their church? Unclear. And for all the talk about abolitionism and uh, especially his grandfather being such a firebrand, yeah, there wasn't really all that much said. There were no black characters that you interacted with directly, just the references to Della and uh, the child and, and Della's father. And But you didn't really feel like you interacted with those characters a whole lot. You just got little glimpses of them. That's my feeling for a lot of the book. You catch glimpses of things, memories. I don't know. I found it underwhelming. Yeah, same. I I really struggled. It didn't hold my attention. You know, I I really had to focus. Yeah. I think going into it, knowing that it was a Pulitzer Prize winner probably worked against it for me because, again, like you're saying, I was maybe had higher expectations for what I was going what we maybe I was thinking the book was going to be something different than what it was. And what it was to me was a very kind of quiet, 
simple story about a good man who lived a good life, uh, but not an exciting life. And I, I was kind of taken with it. I guess again, I was unexpe- it was unexpected. It wasn't the type of book I maybe I was expecting, even though I, hmm. I didn't know what to expect. I was like, this one, the Pulitzer Prize? People like this? <laughs> yeah. Like, I kind of like it, but I don't usually like things that win awards. I, I was surprised to hear it won a Pulitzer, to be honest. Award-winning doesn't necessarily mean it's interesting for every reader. Yeah. Like, there was one part, I think, where, he, where John Ames is writing about a memory of his mother coming into the room when he was either maybe he was sick and and he didn't realize he she was there for quite a while and then he woke up and knew she was there and she's oh don't move it's just me uh, I'm just enjoying the the quiet mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of like this book I kind of enjoyed the quiet I mean one thing you could take from this book is that he was very much invested in talking about all the good things you could find in life all the things you could enjoy about life you know. Yeah, was, attitude of gratitude. Yeah. There was some comment about, you know, this world deserves all the attention you can give it and like things like that. In contrast to all of the immense amounts of suffering and misery that uh, every character in the book went through, right? Because clearly life was very, very hard. And then his response to it is to just try to find every morsel of joy he can and not talk about all the suffering stuff. Yeah, because he himself, you know, loses his wife, his child mm-hmm. as an infant, lives for decades. I mean, he, would, he could, has a lot that he could be uh, bitter about, mm-hmm. you know. I feel like he's bitter about that grave-searching adventure when they had to steal carrots and... <laughs> And sleep out in the elements, and his dad almost got shot. And like, I mean, he yeah. he frames it in a very like this was an adventure, and we had you know it was a, a bonding experience. Then that's where too, like he he comes across as a reliable narrator in the sense that he goes to great pains to try to express himself clearly, but also he whitewashes so much of what's happened that it's its own kind of unreliability. It was kind of like the way his grandfather was always like, I'm sure it will be a great blessing to me. Like when he lost his eye, when something bad happened to him, he was like, oh, it will be a great blessing to me. And it's like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> What do you even make of stuff like that? And then when people can't talk to each other about the simplest things and just have to read underneath the conversation, like, I mean, now that I reflect on it, it's like it's, it's not at all honest in that sense it's a very carefully managed speech that part about his father and grandfather talking politely but not really to each other remind me of that scene in the remains of the day remember where the butler was talking to his father and he wouldn't even call him father he said uh would one like a a cup of coffee mm-hmm. or whatever like it's just sort of the again another another novel about things unsaid yeah i love that novel though oh yeah yeah that's it yeah, that was a very different novel, though. Yeah. yeah. that And that one connected in a way that even though there was a lot of quiet stuff, you know, a lot of stuff unsaid, I don't know, that one worked much better for me. Yeah, and there's a lot more plot in that book because mm-hmm. he's driving around the countryside and he's, um, he's, I just think he's a more interesting character than John Ames, too. Not all that Christian stuff. Well, uh, do we have any final thoughts or summaries or ideas we want to toss out before we move on to the next section? Would not recommend. No? No. Not on Toby's recommendation <laughs> list? No, no. I, uh, I'm sorry, Pulitzer Committee, you <laughs> have been outvoted here. <laughs> I, uh, I 
I would have DNF this book if it wasn't for this podcast. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I also would have DNF'd. Yeah. Which stands for do not finish, if you don't know what that means, dear reader. I probably would have DNS'd it, which would have been, I wouldn't even have started it if without the <laughs> podcast. But because I did, I, I, I think of the three of us, I think I probably enjoyed it the most. Definitely. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, again, am I going to read the other three? Never say never. I'm not certainly gonna, not going to put it in my resolutions. I'll, I'll say never. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> I looked at that and I saw three more books with all the same characters just from each. Uh, no. I thought Toby no. was joking when she said there's three sequels. I'm like, what? <laughs> she was not. I only found out today when I yeah. did a quick thing because a coworker asked me what we were reading. I looked it up and it's like, wait, there's more? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so with all of that said, let's move on to can you tell me a book I would also like? Anyone got a book? That, I mean, I do. I do yeah. have a book I could talk about, I suppose, if you like. I don't know if either of you have heard of a book called Stoner by John Williams. I've read it. Mm. Read it. I've read it too. So um, I have not. Oh, okay. And it's John Williams, not the composer of music, but a novelist from the mid-20th century. And Stoner is the character's name, so it's not a book uh, about Seth Rogen and Jane Franco. <laughs> uh, well, before I say what the, what the book is about, it kind of has an interesting history. It was published in 1965 to middling reviews. It did okay, and then it kind of went away, and no one thought about it again until about 50 years later, it became popular again in Europe, particularly in France. Just through word of mouth, the British publishers are like, what's this book that they're reading in France? And so it got re-released, and then kind of by trickle effect, it came to the States. I know one of your favorite authors, Lori Moore, had something to say about it. She said, Stoner is such an interesting phenomenon. It is a terrific and terrifically sad little book, but the way it has taken off in the UK is a bit of a head-scratcher for most of us American authors who find it lovely, flawed, engagingly written and minor rather than great and so what the story is it is minor it's small kind of like gilead about this professor stoner and his whole life his name is william stoner he spends his entire academic career at the university of missouri he starts as a student there in 1910 and then later as a professor of english until his death in 1956 he comes from a farm family, so he initially goes to study agriculture. I mean, he had to fulfill his degree requirements by taking a couple of English courses. So it's there where he discovers Shakespeare, particularly Sonnet 73, and his world just changed and uh, comes alive with literature. And the rest of the book is like a quiet book where uh, he's he's got interdepartmental conflict and uh, he gets married, you know, marriage isn't great, he has a child, things kind of don't work out. It's kind of a series of unfortunate events, but it's, it's sort of, it's, it's remarkable in its unremarkableness, if that's, if that's a thing. So if anyone's interested, uh, Stoner by John Williams, what did you think of it, Toby? I found it very boring. (laughs) (laughs) I did read it probably about 20 years ago, um, and my tastes have maybe matured since then, so... yeah. And I first heard about it because a, a woman in the Louis Riel book club had suggested it hmm. uh, t- about 10 years ago. And so she's like, you really have to read this. And I'm like, I did. And I was like, huh. Got my same response to Gilead. Huh. 
<laughs> different than what I thought. So I struggled because tell me about a book I would also like assumes that I liked this book, which I didn't. So I thought about it and um, I came up with the book Priest Daddy by Patricia Lockwood, which, as the title would suggest, concerns a priest who is also a father. So you can see where I got it from. This is a memoir. Um, if you like jokes about both abortion and Ethan Frome, this might be the type of book for you. I know one of those two things. <laughs> um, Ethan Frome is a it's a old book. Right. <laughs> so, like I said, it's a memoir. Patricia Lockwood, she had a religious upbringing. Her father was a priest, hence the book title. And um, he was quite the character. He underwent a religious conversion on a submarine and found a loophole which saw him approved for Catholic priesthood by the future Pope Benedict XVI, despite already having a wife and children. The memoir, she talks about her youth, having this priest as a father, um, and then eventually a crisis that led her and her husband to briefly live in her parents' rectory. It's very funny. It also has a serious side. I get kind of like Fleabag vibes from it, if you've seen that show. I think there's a very specific audience for Patricia Lockwood, you know, non-religious, elder, millennial book lovers like myself, but she really is quite something. Um, her humor is super sharp. Her use of language is amazing. She's also written um, some fiction, including a book called No One Is Talking About This, which is also top-notch. But yes, that is my recommendation, Priest Daddy. Mm -hmm. Did you just refer to yourself as elderly? Elder millennial. Oh, oh that, I don't know what that is. <laughs> That's, you know, younger than a younger Gen X. Yeah. Younger than a younger Gen X, but older than a... Younger millennial. I'm, I'm an old millennial. Like the leading edge of millennials. When I look at, yeah, when I look up sort of the millennial generation, they tend to start at like 1980. And I was born in 1982. Um, and then prior to 1980, you get Gen X. Oh, okay. Which is you too. Us so, guys. Yeah. Yeah. My recommendation, if you enjoyed this book, is Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. I'll read a description I found for it. A sweeping, emotionally riveting first novel, an enthralling family saga of Africa and America, doctors and patients, exile and home. Marion and Shiva Stone are twin brothers born of a secret union between a beautiful Indian nun and a brash British surgeon at a mission hospital in Addis Ababa. Orphaned by their mother's death in childbirth and their father's disappearance, bound together by the preternatural connection and a shared fascination with medicine, the twins come of age as Ethiopia hovers on the brink of revolution. Yet it will be love, not politics, their passion for the same woman, that will tear them apart and force Marion, fresh out of medical school, to flee his homeland. He makes his way to America, finding refuge in his work as an intern at an underfunded, overcrowded New York City hospital. When the past catches up to him, nearly destroying him, Marion must entrust his life to the two men he thought he trusted least in the world, the surgeon father who abandoned him and the brother who betrayed him. I'm recommending this because both authors have a command of language and uh, like to use that language. Uh, the novels uh, both involve the importance of family. Uh, I started reading this book and did not finish it because it was uh, boring me to tears. Um, <laughs> But it's highly praised, and uh, I, I don't know if it, for sure if it won any awards or anything, but it was very highly praised by uh, a lot of, I think, the same people who liked this book. So, I think uh, it was an Oprah, Oprah book. Was it also an Oprah thing? I think okay. so, yeah. Yeah, so I figure if you really liked this month's book, then you may also really like Cutting for Stone. But I did not. <laughs>
And with that, we will move to our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, uh, wherein words that have entered our hearts recently are expressed with love. Who's got a word? Um, mine's short and sweet, so I will go. Um, so my word is surus, which is taken directly from this novel. It's a word that Reverend Ames likes, and he, um, he writes a poem with the word in it because he says he's never found another use for it. The lines of this poem go, Open the scroll of conch and find the text that lies behind the priestly susurrus. So susurrus, it's a whispering or rustling sound like the wind blowing through fall leaves or waves crashing on a shore. It is borrowed from the Latin, where the same word has the same definition. And it is, it is a lovely word. It's kind of an onomatopoeia. It feels nice to say. It's a word that you probably don't use much, but it is a nice one. Susurrus. Good choice. Thank you. And if you look up Susurrus in a thesaurus, what do you find? Oh, good question. <laughs> that was also my word. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but I think you did a great job explaining it and pronouncing it. I was in my head pronouncing it Susurrus. Oh. But I don't know if that's right. Susurrus uh, sounds like a hero from Greek mythology. It does, kind of. And, and would Susurrus battle the Thesaurus? <laughs> Sorry, uh, I'll stop now. <laughs> No, I, I did like the onomatopoeia-ishnessism of it, where it sounds like the sound of rustling, whispering uh, leaves on the ground. And I also liked, because, you know, the young people today, they like to use the term sus mm-hmm. uh, when referring to something suspicious. Yeah. But maybe we could also start using sus as a short form of uh, whispering. Yeah. That's very sus. It was fine. Oh, no, I just mean he's whispering. <laughs> My word or phrase this month has nothing to do with the book, uh, but it was on my mind recently. Cognitive shuffling is a term I came across very recently. I have, for most of my life, had difficulty sleeping, particularly the falling asleep part. I can lie in bed for an hour or more easy any given night, and that's when I'm sleeping well. If I'm having trouble sleeping, it can be longer. So I'm always kind of interested in anything that might help with uh, sleep. And so I came across cognitive shuffling. And this is kind of like it sounds. You want to shuffle your thinking, cognitive referring to thinking, and shuffle just moving stuff around. It's something that was discovered or developed by a Canadian researcher named Dr. Luc Baudouin. Baudin. I'm not going to be able to pronounce this name. B-E-A-U-D-O-I-N. The problem a lot of people have is that when you are trying to sleep, your brain just stays active. According to this research, the reason it does that is if your brain is in storytelling mode and going over events or descriptions or things like that, the part of your brain that lets you go to sleep thinks, oh, maybe you're evaluating a threat. Maybe there's something you need to focus on right now because it might be dangerous. And so it keeps you awake so you can continue to evaluate that threat. And this is especially troublesome if you are stressed about something. So the idea of cognitive shuffling is instead of doing that, you pick arbitrary objects and imagine them in your head. And you just keep switching from object to object or scene to scene and therefore quiet your brain Because uh, when you get all these random images in your head, that's kind of the thing your brain naturally does when you're falling asleep. And so your brain starts thinking, oh, you're not thinking about anything important now. It's safe and I can go to sleep. So the researcher also developed an app called My Sleep Button, which just whispers words to you in random order so you can imagine them. I only learned about this on like Friday and I tried it a couple of nights and it does seem to help me get to sleep a little faster. 
But fair warning, it doesn't help if you wake up in the middle of the night and then try to use it then to get back to sleep because by that time you can't focus enough to concentrate on words anymore, or at least I can't. And that was also a thing that they said on their website, that that's not the time to use it. Cognitive shuffling for all of you out there who are also insomniacs. I heard of something. I guess it, it was the exact same thing, but you would choose a letter of the alphabet. So you would choose like A and then you would pick like think apple and picture an apple and alligator and picture an alligator just yep. to give your brain even less to, to do. Yep. Yeah, uh, that's the, that's okay. the same method. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's the first time I heard of it. Yeah. They said that you could pick a word like bedtime and then do as many B words as mm -hmm. you could and then switch to E words and uh, D words. This is where you find out how poor you are at <laughs> yes. imagining random objects because <laughs> it is a bit challenging, <laughs> but totally worth it. I think to give it a try, I'm going to keep trying it for a while longer and see how well it works. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss If Beale Street Could Talk by James Baldwin. In this honest and stunning novel, James Baldwin has given America a moving story of love in the face of injustice, told through the eyes of Tish, a 19-year-old girl, in love with Fawny, a young sculptor who is the father of her child. Baldwin's story mixes the sweet and the sad. Tish and Fawny have pledged to get married, but Fawny is falsely accused of a terrible crime and imprisoned. Their family set out to clear his name, and as they face an uncertain future, the young lovers experience a kaleidoscope of emotions, affection, despair, and hope. In a love story that evokes the blues, where passion and sadness are inevitably intertwined, Baldwin has created two characters so alive and profoundly realized that they are unforgettably ingrained in the American psyche. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service. Maybe leave us a review and tell all your book-loving friends about us, too. Until next time, make sure you find Time, time to Read. CTV go. <laughs> I didn't see anything about it aside from your picture on Instagram. <laughs> Trevor spoke first and <laughs> he uh, had a lot to say. And then they went to me and they were like, we're almost out of time. <laughs> Tell us about what you what books you have? <laughs> they, they said they were almost out of time, even while I was just doing the first book. Okay, we so Trevor hogged all the time. We need to practice next time, I think, Trevor. Absolutely. <laughs> or you need to practice 30 seconds about the podcast, 30 seconds yes. about book one, 30 seconds about book two. In fact, we, there was almost like a premonition, because remember before we went on, we were talking about our styles and yep. how you can be very concise, yep. and I ramble. <laughs> and, so, and you said that, and then you didn't start with Toby. <laughs> we didn't have a well, choice. She, she, yeah, she was, she, first of all, she wanted you to sit beside yeah. her. Yeah, she was she, like, Trevor's going to be here. here. Yeah, and Toby's mm -hmm. over there. And then, she, and then she was like, what books did you bring? And so I had to like I had a stack because I came prepared. I knew I'd probably only get through one or two. And I was showing it kind of quickly, and then she's like, "All right, thirty seconds." And then you know, before we knew it, we were having microphones put up our shirts. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, attached, uh, you know, with our consent. I, mean, I don't want to give the impression that we were molested. Okay. Like a lot of people didn't hold you down all that quickly. <laughs> no, just one big guy that kind of... Uh, <laughs> Don't move if you know what's good for you. <laughs> and then before you know it, she, it comes up, right? And she's like, ah, Trevor and Toby are here from Winnipeg Public Library to uh, give us some spooky book suggestions. <laughs> yeah. right. tell, tell us about your spooky books. Yeah. And, uh, and when this is news to us <laughs> because we were we not prepared for spooky books. <laughs> no. I really felt like the narrator from last month's uh, hell of a book, you know, when he had that breakdown uh, during the interview and it, like, like, I feel like, like all the lights went out. I'm like, have I been here for an hour or, you know, it's only been... But when she was like, oh, yeah. and you do some spooky books on the podcast, you were like, yes, yes, we do. Let me tell you about Gilead. Like, we d- are doing Gilead. Yeah. Uh, and I- it's super spooky. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's right. She did say do we do spooky books. She said spooky about five times. She did. And it was, yeah. It's amazing that if she was so, if she was so keyed into spooky, like, what, what, why did that not get to us? Yes. 